we are aware that uh, as, a, as a church, we're in an, an extremely difficult time. And it is, a, it is just a difficult and painful situation for those of us who are here, for Evan and his family. Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know how to get my arms around it, quite honestly. So the thoughts that I share today, the scriptures that I share, I trust will help us just gather some thinking together as, uh, as we have to do some discussing when we are done here. So allow me, if you will, to ask us to go to Acts chapter 13, and I'm going to go through about four, four different passages, and let's get our arms around them, and then we'll, then we'll respond or react, interact with them. Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 13, just a quick snippet. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. What I want us just to make note of in verse 13 is this seemingly innocuous little note that Luke puts into this account that, oh, John took off. He, he was gone, and uh, yeah, he wasn't part of their party at that point. And it just seems to come in passing in terms of, his, uh, of Luke's writing of this account. Then we get to Acts chapter 15, and beginning at verse 36, now we're going to come to the second missionary journey that uh, Paul and is hoping to embark on with Barnabas. We read in verse 36, Then after some days Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with him the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So what Luke wrote, which seemed as such an innocuous statement in chapter 13, we find in chapter 15 had some significance. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the, grace, by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches." Then I'm going to ask if you will turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. It seems like out of place in light of what we have here, but I trust we'll pull them together. Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, is describing his ministry among them, how they have labored at their own hands while others have, have uh, drawn income from them for their ministries. He said, or is it only Barnabas and I? We have no right to refrain from working. Ties himself to Barnabas again at that point. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Paul writes this, Be diligent to come to me quickly, he's writing to Timothy, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. So he's calling for Timothy to come to him. He's got these people who are moving in different places. Some have abandoned, apparently, the work completely. He says in verse 11, Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, 
for he is useful to me for ministry. Somehow, as Timothy was moving back to be in the presence of Paul, he knew he was going to come close enough proximity to Mark to say, bring him with. I need him here also. Now, what's the, what's the little sequence here of stuff that I want us to grasp? It's simply this. They were on their first missionary journey. Mark chose to leave the party at one point. They're going to go on their second missionary journey. And they have a difference. Barnabas and, and, and uh, Paul have a difference of opinion about what to do with Mark. And Barnabas thinks we should take him, convinced that should happen. Paul thinks, no, we have to leave him because he didn't go with us to the work. So much so, they decide to go different directions. 1 Corinthians 9, 6, we find out, but wait, that, that in somewhere in the course of time, they're back working together. Barnabas and Paul are again in fellowship with one another, serving together, as well as you get to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, and we find that Paul is now asserting or affirming Mark's presence, Mark's ministry, and that it's significant to him, so bring him along. The very one who he did not want to be ministering with some time ago, now come along, bring him with you, I need him here. And so there has been, um, whatever the breakdown was, there has been a, a, a mending, if you will. But actually, we, many of you know that story. Actually, where I want to turn to, because to me this is a, this is a classic kind of thing, I want to turn to the notes in my MacArthur Bible study uh, Bible. This Bible that I bring into the pulpit with me every, every week. This Bible that in this particular case, I think these notes reflect something that, at least for me, and who am I to question John MacArthur, right? Who am I to question John MacArthur? But this is something that frustrates me sometimes about people who are writing relative to or preaching relative to incidents where they seem to be able to find stuff there that I don't see that the writer put there. So MacArthur on 2 Timothy 4.11, in referencing that, you know, Mark, bring Mark, for he's useful to me, Paul says. MacArthur writes this comment. On second, uh, he says that Mark, had, and I'm quoting, had once left Paul and Barnabas in shame. And I find myself asking the question, where in what Luke said was there anything that we need to identify that it was Mark was in shame when he left? Luke just says he left. Later they had a division over it, but Luke does not say that he left in shame. So why, why, would, a, why would a guy put that in there when the author of Scripture did not? He just noted that this happened. And now he identifies shame with it. And then if you will allow me, and this will be a little harder for me to read because it's uh, notes in my uh, notes which are in small print and it's like, okay, yeah, that doesn't always work real well for me. But in Acts chapter 15, these are, this is the note that MacArthur includes for here about their separating from one another. This was not an amicable Parting. They were in sharp uh, disagreement uh, concerning John, regarding John Mark. The weight of the evidence favors Paul's decision, especially 
since he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. That alone should have uh, uh, causes Barnabas to submit to his authority. Uh, but they eventually did reconcile. And he goes to the verse we talked about. And I find myself reading that and going again, okay, perhaps it wasn't, it wasn't an amicable parting, but it might have been. They might have realized, you know what, we have two very different ideas here. And maybe what God is suggesting is, hey, Barnabas, you go ahead and you take Mark and work with him. Barnabas is referred to as the son of encouragement when we first meet him in the early part of the book of Acts. You go and you encourage this young man because there is hope in him. There is gifting in him that, that can be of value. And it's important that he be encouraged. And Paul is saying, but right now I can't have that ministry of encouraging, encouraging um, uh, John Mark. That's not what I can. Right now we need to be able to effectively do the ministry. So, hey, let's agree that we're going to go two different directions. And then Paul brings in Silas and off they go. My point is, we're, not told, we're told that it was a difficult thing, and they definitely, they definitely wrestled with one another about opinions on what should happen. But we're not told at the point of their separation that they hadn't come to a place where they said, hey, let's agree to disagree. Let's accomplish two things in all of this. We're just told that it was strong enough they couldn't agree on which direction to go, so they, they separated. Now, here's something that, that, here's something that can happen. And I wonder about this. You see, when you put it in those terms, as I just put it to you, it's kind of boring. I'm like, oh, yeah, that wasn't any big deal, was it? Sometimes we as preachers, they all, we have a phrase, you know, <laughs> will it preach? Does it preach? Okay. Can we make that work? I mean, sometimes we can be guilty of putting a little bit more in there is there because now we can create this situation. There was all this incredible tension. They were arguing. But at the end, it all worked out okay. So there's just something, there's just something to think about. He also says, uh, MacArthur said that, uh, well, he should have immediately uh, relented to Paul's perspective because Paul is the apostle. You get to Acts chapter 14, and there's this incident where the people at Lystra, who are idolaters, hear the gospel and see what's happening with, with uh, Paul and Barnabas, and they respond wanting to claim that they're gods. And we read in Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 14, But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God, who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all the things that are in them. So they're, they're waving them off, saying, Don't exalt us. Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim, is the only one to be exalted. We're just sinners just like you in need of the redemption that we proclaim to you. But did you notice? When the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, maybe we need to give a little weight to the fact that Luke identifies Barnabas as an apostle. It wasn't when Barnabas and the apostle Paul, the text clearly says, 
the apostles, plural, Barnabas and Paul. So maybe Barnabas has some weight with which to have an argument with Paul. Additionally, and we don't have time to look at it, look at Paul's early introduction into the church after he's first saved. And Barnabas plays a critical role, a critical role in getting Paul identified with the early believers. Is it possible? Is it possible that Barnabas had this role? I remember Dr. Howard Hendricks said, every one of us needs somebody in our life who can call us out who will call us out when necessary. Is it possible because of his early introduction of Paul into the ministry, into the church, having ministered with him, is it possible that Barnabas had the authority in the place in Paul's life to call him out if necessary? Because Paul in his humanity, as he is proclaiming here, is just another man. See, we're not told who was right in this discussion. We're not told who was right. And I could argue the point if I wanted. I'm not going to. That the whole intent of this, of this little thing that we see happening, Mark leaves, there's a division, they're all put back together. I could argue a point that says the, the reason for this, you see, because we we got to ask, why is this in here? Luke could have left this out just as much. Never told us about this little, this little incident with, with uh, uh, John, Mark, and Paul, and, and this stuff. Nothing was required for him to put it in. Why did the Spirit of God prompt him to put it in? I could argue, rather than us for saying, oh, Paul is always right, I could just as well argue that perhaps this is in here so we would remember not to consider the apostles or any other humans as infallible. It is to remind us that Jesus Christ alone is the one we look to and exalt in his lordship and glory. And it's there to just give us that little sense of, huh, even among the early church leaders, they had their stresses just like we do. So from that, if you follow it along, I'd like to consider a couple of things. Number one, as I think John MacArthur has reached conclusions for which there is no biblical evidence, let's not, as we're faced with an extremely difficult day, Hear me. Let's not jump to conclusions based on information we don't have or based on others' opinions who also don't have that information. Can I beg of you to think about that? Secondly, this happened early on in the church. A division over what to do with someone, it's happening now, right here within our fellowship. We're aware of that. It will happen countless times in the future. 
But God's kingdom work will continue. For years, I have found this truth to be necessary for me as I see disruptions, not among us, just I see it out in the church. And I tell myself, yes, this is painful. Yes, this is hard. Uh, Yes, it is so very difficult. But this is not going to stop the work of the kingdom. Because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And my friends, think about this. Is that not our gig? Isn't that what we're about? Isn't it about doing the kingdom work? About his church going forward? You know, it's in the bulletin every week. What's our mission statement? Advancing the kingdom of God. That's based on Jesus' proclamation, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it because we know that he is in the process of building his church and he gives us the privilege of being part of that. He not only calls us to be members within his body and part of his church, but he gifts us so that we can be a part of that work and that work will not fail even though somebody can say whatever, wherever we land in all of this that, well, you have failed. But Jesus Christ will build his church. Let's find encouragement in that. And remember that this kind of thing happened very, very early on. And yet, look at the church where it's at today. By the way, I should say this. I am not one for parading people publicly. So you can take this at face value Or you can say, I'm blowing smoke. Thank you if you think I'm blowing smoke. Really appreciate that compliment. But the very week when we are wrestling with an extremely difficult situation, this very week, someone who sits regularly in this very fellowship shared with me how this very week an individual that they've been ministering to for a couple of months professed Christ as Savior. In the midst of this fellowship having all this pain. Because God is at work. And as Larry Bierceness liked to say, and sometimes he even uses the likes of us to accomplish his ends. Third, ours is a message of reconciliation. We sang it in that first corporate, or not the first song, but when we're our worship set of Christmas carols. God and sinners reconciled. Ours is a message of reconciliation. A question. Are we going to preach it and not live it? Are we going to preach it and not Live it. You see, Paul, Barnabas, and Mark demonstrate that it can be done. Maybe that's why it's included to remind us as we interact with one another. Let's not conduct ourselves in such a way that we're guaranteeing that reconciliation becomes impossible. So let's consider that. Because it is at the very heart of this message, and as Mike pointed out, about this season that is ours. 
Let's keep that in mind. We're people of a reconciliation. Now, while speaking of reconciliation and seeking the ideals of reconciliation, we need to acknowledge that we are in deep pain. And we all are in deep pain. We're not going to sugarcoat this and say everything should be fine. Well, everything should be fine. It's not. It hurts to the depths of our souls. Which is why I want to take us to our last scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There's some struggles going on in the Corinthian church. Always seem to be struggles in the Corinthian church. And their differences that they're having. And, and part of those in this particular context is about spiritual gifts. And how they fit in and all of that stuff. But Paul, as he's talking to these people who are, who are you know, ripping themselves apart over the context of, over the situation of spiritual gifts. In verse 12, he says this. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact... The body is not one member, but many. I'm going to drop down to verse 20 now as he, as he continues to talk about these different members of the body, the eye and the foot and things like that. Verse 20, but now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Do you understand right now, friends? All the members are suffering in our body. Every one of us. We all hurt. We hurt for the Salibis. I promise you, again, you can dismiss it because it's going to come to a point. Some of you are ready to just dismiss anything I say. I know that. I get it. But I promise you, I know that Evan came to us out of a previous ministry that lasted one year and ended badly. I know this. Now, why do I mention that? Because for the entire time he's been here, that has been on my mind. I do not want to deal with this young man. That he comes here, and now I am just reliving for him that I have hurt for him over that since he arrived and first described to me 
what that setting was. And so now, a second time, I can't fathom the pain and the sadness that must be felt for them right now. I can't fathom it. We hurt for the Salibis. We hurt for the board. And if you cannot hurt for the board, you don't understand what's going on. This has not been easy. It's not been fun. And will probably be the hardest thing they are ever asked to do in service on a church board. We have one board member who, a number of years ago, I always delighted to think about this. He said, I love our board meetings. We come, we do good work, we laugh, we pray, we have such a good time with each other. At our last board meeting, he said, and two have been held within a, in less than a week, so understand that. This was the second of them. Now this was his testimony. I left the meeting, went out to my car, and I wept. Do not buy in to a mindset that says the board is not ripped up over what is in front of us. I'm telling you, they hurt. We hurt for the friends of Evan. There are some people here who just love him dearly. And we hurt for them that they share this burden with him and they want to know more than they can know. It was only a couple weeks ago that a young boy took his life. How many hundreds of times since then have people asked, why? Why? And they're never going to know. But that question probes at us. Why? And there are friends of Evans that are going to want to know more than they can know. And they're going to ask, why? And we hurt for those kids, for those kids with whom they did make a connection because they don't understand. They don't get it. So we hurt. Not just one member. So we all share in that member's hurt. We all hurt. Let me wrap up with a few thoughts. Are we going to lash out in pain at our brothers and sisters or draw closer to Christ and seek healing? It's worth our thinking about. Are we going to make the wound within the body deeper by hurtful words and angry accusations? Are our very brothers and sisters whom we ask to serve on the board going to be recipients of our derision because they were forced to deal with the most difficult decision they will probably ever face as a board, a decision none of them wanted to be faced with. And I will guarantee you, if they knew and they accepted, that, hey, at some point in your time on the board, this is what you're going to have to deal with, they would have said, no thanks. 
not my gig, thank you. I don't want to have to face that. I don't want to have to bear that decision. Last question. Do we believe that the volume of our pain is greater than that of others around us? Are we so wounded by this that our pain is bigger than anybody else's and therefore it justifies whatever behavior I want to throw at this thing? I'd like to think of it in terms of volume. Some of us have been dealing with the pain in front of us for the last few days. That's it. A matter of a few days. And yes, the pain is intense. Do we really think that the volume of pain that the emotional drain upon our spirit, that what has been extracted from us in a couple of days begins to compare with the pain of those who have been wrestling with this for weeks? Those who have been wrestling for months and those who literally have been wrestling for over two years and have had extracted from them time and time and time again. Pain and emotions and confusion. Do we really think in our little bubble of immediate pain that it begins volume-wise to compare with everything that's going on here? I'd like us to think about that. As we're all in pain, we all need to show grace to one another. Father, thank you that you are gracious. Thank you that we are people who claim a message of reconciliation. We are people who celebrate and are singing reconciliation, who believe that you are a God who reconciles. And so we ask that you would fill us with that hope as we deal with one another. And Father, we... Rochelle and their family. We hurt for them. We pray that they might know your grace, your presence, your kindness, your strength as they process what is perhaps the deepest pain they have ever experienced. Lord, may you uplift them even now. And may you give us wisdom as a congregation in the days ahead to know how best that we can support them and care for them. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.